Okay. We're on. Well, good morning, everybody. Thanks for joining us. And uh, I wanted to begin this morning with, uh, I thought this would serve a couple of purposes. Uh, maybe the principal one in my mind is it's uh, perhaps a nice uh, connector with between what we're doing on Saturdays on ritual with what we're looking at Thursdays uh, in our study of Mountains and Water Sutra. What I'm gonna share with you comes from a book, uh, a beautiful short little book, What is Life? by Paul Nurse, who's a uh, biologist. And he says, life on earth belongs to a single, vastly interconnected ecosystem, which incorporates all living organisms. This fundamental connectedness comes not only interdependency, but also from the fact that all life is genetically related through its shared evolutionary roots. This perspective of deep relatedness and interconnectedness has long been championed by ecologists. It has its origins in the thinking of the early 19th century explorer and naturalist Alexander von Humboldt, who argued that all life is bound together by a holistic web of connections. Unexpected as it may be, this interconnectivity is core to life and should give us good reason to pause and think more deeply about the impact human activity has on the rest of the living world. Science and Dharma walking hand in hand. I think I mentioned uh, maybe it was as recently as this past Thursday or the prior week that uh, you know, our one of our favorite terms in Buddhism, interconnectedness, it's rampant throughout the sciences now. Uh, it's pretty rare that I'd be uh, looking at a book dealing with science that doesn't use that term. So, uh, and the fact as at the end of this paragraph I just read to you, uh, that he brings it back to its impact on our activity. If we have that understanding, how does that then impact the way we behave in the world, our actions? From an ecological standpoint, it means our level of caring starts to expand from beyond just what seems to be more natural and ingrained, the caring for immediate family, immediate friends, but rather it, it begins to expand. And of course, boundlessness is a term that we use frequently in Buddhism. And ultimately, that's where, where the expansion of, of this caring leads us to, is it's boundless. It's to all beings without exception. And hence ritual is instilling this sense of caring in an embodied way, going beyond just our, the words describing it which keeps it in the dualistic realm. It's, it's an idea. But by performing these rituals, like we just did with our morning service, or every time we just do this simple when we bow to each other be, before uh, a talk or at the end of a talk, it's the caring. So when we begin a talk, the fact that we chant, 
we're acknowledging what we're about to enter into, a Dharma talk, and, and basically saying, you know, this is, this is uh, something special. But the purpose ultimately behind all this ritual isn't because the, spe the special things that need to be ritualized are happening in here. It's to be able to carry that outside. Because it's all special. In the boundless realm, it's all connected. So if I'm reading anything, it's like reading a Dharma text even the daily newspaper. It's not that I just kind of blow through that because it's not so special. And when I pick up my, my Dharma text, now, now it's a whole different uh, feel to it. It should be no different, no different. So for ritual to really take root is to carry it forth and, and to help, help us live our lives in a way we, where we are caring for everything. The way modern day ecology teaches us that the planet needs our caring. All beings need it. So it's good to develop those patterns. And ritual is just a way of embodying it. Otherwise the practice uh, would, would really almost stop being a practice. It's gotta be connected to our activity, what we actually do, we have to live it. And ritual is a place where that connection gets made where we can actually live it. But the forms of the ritual, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago when we first launched into this, they're not the important thing, whatever they are. It's the, the essence of it is the caring for it. Whether we add a bell or take a bell away or add, add or delete whole sections or take statues down or replace them with other figures or, or stop burning incense. A lot of centers have stopped doing that just because people with respiratory issues. I mean, when I was a uh, couple of years ago at uh, the Milwaukee Zen Center for a week, they had where where the uh, incense gets put here, they had a little dish of water and they had little flower petals. So the doshi would go up and take a flower petal, put it to his or her forehead and drop it in the water. You know, it's ritual. Don't get caught up in a particular type of ritual. That's not the essence of it. But the reason for ritual is it, it brings us together and it can be actually a very beautiful thing. In fact, uh, in the course offered by the great courses on the Analects of Confucius, which we're gonna be turning our attention to, one of the lectures is titled uh, Confucius on Embodied Ritual and Music. And we've kind of referenced that here <laughs> within the past couple of weeks about the, the, the commonalities between ritual and music in terms of, of uh, a group of individuals coming together in the, perform in the performance. It's essentially a performative art. And to be able to come together harmoniously and practice together, very mindfully together. You know, one of the greatest laboratories for mindfulness practice that I have had the uh, privilege of attending on a number of occasions are Cleveland Orchestra rehearsals. 
where to go through a rehearsal with them requires extreme mindfulness in terms of their working through a score and where they're going to go to, to rehearse something, making adjustments at the conductor's direction. They're out there for hour and a half, two hours, and <laughs> they, they've got to be locked in for that whole stretch of time. So it runs throughout so many aspects of our life. And we'll keep coming back to that too, the fact that ritual isn't just a religious thing. The first, our first talk on this, I brought up the, the wine ritual at restaurants, just as a, a good example of that, I think. But if we reflect on it, we can see all these ways that ritual factors into our life. So today, I wanted to pick up where we kind of left off last week, uh, which is beginning now to take us more uh, directly into the impact of Confucianism here uh, with the introduction of the, Ch the Chinese term Li, L-I, which was so focal for Confucius. Uh, and the term Li uh, designates ritual, rites, etiquette, customs, conventions, social norms, propriety. And you know, this is really core to what Confucius teachings were directed to, is just this aspect of ritual. And Li certainly predates Confucius and his teachings, pointing to things like holy rituals, such as sacrifices to the ancestors or divination practices. But what Confucian did, so he didn't create that aspect of it. But what he did, and the reason why it has an impact for us as Zen practitioners is he deepened the meaning of Li so that it would apply to social norms, conventions, etiquette, rituals, and gestures, reflecting the proper ways of living, exemplified by one's cultural ancestors or ancient sage kings, a tradition. And this is true for us in our Zen practice. But it's not limited just to a spiritual or religious tradition either. So we are those meaning invested roles and relationships and institutions which facilitate communication and which foster a sense of community and thus common good. It's kind of the, the bonding agent for us. So in a Sangha, you know, the rituals that we perform here is bringing us together in our practice. And the role of rituals in other parts of life are doing the same thing. It's bringing people together. Anytime people come together, you don't have to dig too deeply to find ritual there and the role it plays, whether it be a, uh, it, you know, speaking of concerts, yeah. ritual there, important ritual. Uh, the, the expression of appreciation at the end of a performance, the applause. Why, why is it clapping? Why don't people just 
do deep bows to the performers. Could, could be that. But that's our ritual. And there's this sense of coming together that if you're in a hall and you just heard a performance, you've experienced something very special together. So to have a hall that's thundering with applause, there's something really heartening about that. And there's kind of like this giving back that the performers have have given a gift to the audience and the audience is, is giving it back in their sign of appreciation. It's all ritual. It could be empty ritual. Could be just, and you can tell that if it wasn't such a great performance. People are, hey. hey. <laughs> <You know? laughs> they, they, they're not coming back for second and third bath. <laughs> a little polite, polite applause. But the heart, wholehearted expression of that gesture really goes deep. That's no different from our ritual. It could be, <laughs> or it could be, oh yeah. <laughs> and if you've got uh, a large center with, with lots of people, the vast majority of whom are really wholeheartedly into, into the ritual, because it means something. It's the meaning, the dharma that, that resonates through the practice, through the ritual. Uh, it's palpable, just like uh, a concert hall with the thundering applause. The, the beautiful performance and the thundering applause. So the role of ritual, or Lee, L-I. And to see how this, uh, the text I'm working from now, that all formal conduct, from table manners to patterns of greeting and leave-taking, all these and so much more are just examples of Lee. They're rituals. Part of growing up is learning rituals. Going to school, going off to school is learning a whole new set of rituals. Getting a new job is learning a whole new set of rituals. Anytime people are coming together to practice together in, in whatever it is they're practicing. Everywhere we turn. There's ritual. So everyday social interaction can be suffused with a holiness or sacredness that comes with the actualization of Tao, provided it is correctly, harmoniously, and spontaneously performed by individuals that are possessed of, of, of uh, this virtuous conduct and that really are, because of the, for us, our Buddhist understanding would see it as this uh, mindfulness practice of everything we do connects to this, uh, this holiness or sacredness from the actualization of Tao, the way, the ultimate, in everything we do. And hence, ritual can seem appropriate. And it can seem appropriate to carrying that outside, not in a formal way, but just that sense of deeply caring and expressing gratitude, feeling gratitude, and acting in accord. It can be in very subtle ways. 
But if you really deeply feel gratitude, just as one example, it will manifest. And not in some over-the-top fashion where one's trying to, to make something more of it. It should just be natural. Just like Tao. That's why what's so powerful about the Tao in Zen and in Taoism is its naturalness. It's not artificial. It's not a fabrication. It's coming, it's, it connects to sincerity, to authenticity. That's the Tao. We're not trying to create it. By just engaging in certain practices, it's the fruit. It comes forth. But Lee performed by individuals who don't bring that to, to their life experience. Now it's akin to mindless habit. Just kind of do it because that's what you've been taught to do. It's an empty shell as opposed to what it could be. And this is when ritual is felt as a fetter or shackle of tradition or the veneration of tradition for tradition's sake, which it should never be, which is why it shouldn't be attached to, because that's the way they used to do it. That's the wrong way to, to approach it. It should be approached from the standpoint that, that just the mere, the fact that there is ritual, regardless of the particular form it takes, is a way that we can connect in a deeper way deeper because of virtuous action that we can really engage with the events of our life in a deeper way and with this ecological mindset, this holistic mindset, rather than just these external disconnected things that ultimately have, have no real meaning So the meaning's not in the particular ritual, but the ritual is this carrier of, of meaning that transcends the particularities of it. As I was describing to Steve, since he was the first one here this morning, you know, uh, the role of the statue, we kind of come to expect, well, this is a Buddhist practice, we expect a, a Buddha figure up on the altar. But, uh, uh, you yeah, know, there are centers. That, there's one teacher in Minneapolis that uh, puts a rock up there. And that, that resonates with me, I like that. <laughs> so it's not getting rid of the ritual. There's still an altar. Because it's it gives uh, it helps promote that harmony. So in our practice, it's oriented to a particular location in the zendo. But what goes up there? I mean, that's it's not the essence of it. Whether there's incense or flower petals up there, or a Buddha figure, or a rock, there's no right or wrong ritual. 
So to get attached to the particularities of the ritual is to miss it. And even to eliminate ritual is another form of ritual. <laughs> it's the ritual of no ritual. And that's okay. <laughs> I get that too. Parts of that resonate with me. But as I said uh, way back uh, earlier in the year, talking about Tony Packer, a uh, teacher who, who took that approach, it's not a place that I would send somebody starting off in the practice. I don't, that's not going to be as helpful to them, in my own humble opinion, as, as coming into a, a center that has uh, more format, more structure to it. But then once, once that's served its purpose, if somebody feels drawn to, to that, it's not about right or wrong. It's kind of a skillful means. At a beginner stage, what's going to be the most effective way to, to, uh, to really deepen one's understanding and practice of Dharma? And I am a firm believer in the usefulness of the forms. So, and, and to continue using them is because practicing with others at all these various levels of experience, you know, to just eliminate forms to my mind, for me would be an impediment to being able to help others. I see the forms as a way to help people with their understanding of Dharma in their practice of it. So, I, in that regard, I, I still embrace forms all these years and most likely always will. But maybe if Cleveland became like uh, another San Francisco and there were Buddhist, we had as many Buddhist centers as we now have bars, you know, maybe... Uh, There'd be enough ritual out there, and maybe I'd start a place that just eschewed all of that. <laughs> I could see that too. I could see under those circumstances, I just don't see those circumstances arising. <laughs> Probably not. So that being the case, I think we'll continue to, to work with forms here, and I do that wholeheartedly. And while I never had the privilege of practicing with Coben, from what I've read about him, I, I get the sense that he, he uh, his approach was not all that dissimilar to mine, that uh, you know, he wasn't caught up by rituals by any stretch of the imagination. Some of them he would freely uh, toss aside, but yet he remained very devoted to ritual too in a very open-handed way. That's a practice I feel deep accord with. And ultimately then the intersection of ritual with ethical conduct. And of course, the fact when we bring the ethical in, it becomes clear that uh, the scope of the ethical is not confined to infrequent or special situations or acts, but refers in some sense, to the entirety of one's con conduct. So that we're always ethical. But the reality is we can see even our ethical conduct as being limited to what we might term moral situations, where it's almost like we, 
we, we think, oh, I need to put my ethical hat on here <laughs> and evaluate this. But the reality is, and this is another aspect of ritual, if we carry it out into our life, we always have that hat on because the ethical is our life because we're constantly interacting, even with, with innate objects. There's ethical implications there. Ecology is all about that. There was a time when you would think, well, you're not dealing with another human, even animal. Animals had no rights. Instead of offering incense, you'd offer up an animal or two, right? But now we live in an age where just kind of the, the, the whole global consciousness seems to be moving in this same direction of recognizing the sacredness of all things. And that our very future depends on that because of this holistic view that we're increasingly beginning to take on. That it is in fact all moral, all ethical. That we need to practice our lives in such a way that we're always deeply caring about everything. Why would we set that aside and, and live any other way? For what reason? Because of self, it becomes self-serving. We see ethics as kind of uh, neglecting the self for the sake of some other thing. And that's why we see certain situations as calling forth uh, a scenario where, well, maybe we need to take somebody else's point of view view into an account here. But that's like a special situation. Normally, I'm okay just looking at it from a self-centered way. But every once in a while, yeah, I, I run into these moral uh, dilemmas and I, I need to look a little more broadly. But if we're practicing, we're always looking at things that way. That is the practice of dropping off of self. So we're not going through the world from the self-centered point of view. We're always looking at things from a broader perspective and recognizing that ultimately there's no difference. Caring for others is caring for self and vice versa. Caring for self is also caring for others. It's just caring. Pure and simple. And the whole sense of self and other drops off. This is the, these are the wisdom teachings of Buddhism. Set that aside. That doesn't get to the crux of the matter. So in Christianity, you know, agape love is, is the expression for that. And all the traditions have that approach. It's part of being on a spiritual path. So in Buddhism, we have these terms like compassion, loving kindness. The practice of no self. or the practice of big self, universal self, boundless, the boundless sense of self. So I think I can go on a little bit more and then I'll hit the pause button for 
for your comments and questions. Uh, since we've entered into this uh, point about ethics, I wanted to bring into this uh, uh, 20th century uh, moral thinker from the Western world, Iris Murdoch, uh, who had some important contributions that she made uh, in this area. And she believed that all our states of consciousness and action presuppose cognitive and affective discrimination, and that any such discrimination is subject to moral appraisal. And she wrote a book uh, entitled Metaphysics as a Guide to Morals, so that the moral life is not a peculiar separate area of our existence because our life is made up of details. And this ties back to Thursday night, Dharma position, the details of our life. That while the Dharma runs through all things and everything's in constant motion and interconnected, yet we experience a world of differentiation. And that's the world that our moral, our morality, our moral practice plays, plays out in, is in the world of, of distinctions. So these aren't special situations. This is part of our life. We're always in a Dharma position. Always. So there's always this merging of difference and unity. Dharma's found there, the unity, but so is the difference every single time. It's always there. How do we work with the difference? Virtuous action is how we bring our understanding of the holistic, of the oneness of all things to bear in a world of all these myriad things that we're dealing with. And ritual has a direct connection for us there. So the practice of ritual is deeply interconnected with our moral virtuous activity. When we can carry it outside of the formal setting for formal ritual practice, when we can really embody it in all aspects of our life, the same level of caring, of appreciation that are conveyed when we're formally practicing ritual. Because if we do it wholeheartedly, it opens something up within us that we can then naturally carry forth with us into our life. So ultimately then it's not something that we uh, consciously carry forward. It just happens. Just like Zazen practice. We take it out into the world with us. We don't have to have, carry the intention but if we are wholeheartedly doing any aspect of this practice, it, it changes things within us. And we take it out into the world with us. And that's where it becomes real. This is what we talk about when we refer to active Buddha. is why it's called practice, not contemplation, not limited to contemplation. Contemplation is practice too. Practice is all-encompassing. And just one way to see this 
interaction between ritual and morality is that respect for things connects with respect for persons and vice versa. It's kind of like this, just the act of caring, the act of just respect for. And if we do it wholeheartedly in any setting, we carry it forward. Because respect or caring changes something. It changes our way of responding to things more broadly. So ultimately, every, as as, uh, this text puts it, every single second has a moral tag. Everything has has a moral aspect to it. Which is why terms like love are so frequently used. Love was the the Christian counterpoint to just uh, following laws. It was about, this is more universal. And of course, the way we can take laws, because we have precepts, which actually look a lot like laws, commandments. But the way you take them shifts. They become universal when they're imbued with love, compassion, rather than just being held as some empty, empty or maybe more accurately, a more limited way of viewing our activity. The thing about love and compassion is they naturally become universal. And we can then bring them into every moment of our life, every particular guideline, every particular practice, every particular ritual because of their universality. So that's pretty much everything I wanted to talk about this this morning. So I'm gonna bow out and uh, open it up for any other thoughts or questions anybody else might have.
So the diversity is what keeps us going, it keeps the pests away. So both in you know, farming and the forest, and I think to myself, but that's our world. If we would embrace all this diversity. Yeah. Um, you know, some of the, um, sometimes the Amish have problems with birth defects because of, Mm -hmm. to, you know, and right. all kinds of things. But right. we need diversity. It's heartbreaking that people don't want it. They just want their own little um, right. you know, community or whatever. They don't want to bring anything. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, and for our Zoom audience, uh, Rannigan, or not Rannigan. <laughs> Cindy. <laughs> Cindy, uh, talking about the importance of diversity. Uh, and yeah, it really is. And it's something that's uh, also spoken to, obviously, in a book, What is Life? Uh, as you're suggesting, I mean, in terms of uh, the importance of it for all living things. And the fact that what, alt what originally was, was one or, or at least just a very few uh, original sources of life have, uh, have now become this vast array but traced, you know, our uh, genetically speaking, you know, the fact that we have so much in common, and uh, we have this issue with uh, diversity among the human population, even. But it's kind of helpful to look at that from the standpoint of genetically, and the fact that the diversity, we can we can make more of that. Than, than is really there, that actually the commonality is just way more, way more than, than the diversity. Uh, but with that little bit of genetic diversity that we have all this richness that, that unfolds because of it. So they're both, it's a perfect example of the merging of difference and unity. Uh, that we we never lose sight of that fact. So we we cherish the diversity. There's a real beauty to it. Otherwise, we're just all these uh, cyborgs. You know, it's just <laughs> one looks like any other. We're all interchangeable. Kind of like in in Star Wars. You know, you can't tell. You just see the massive troops out there. <laughs> One is just like any other, the clones. <laughs> uh, you know, and that's not us. That's not us. But we're, we can get too caught up in the uh, diversity too. So there's this, this having them both coming together to see holistically the, what we have in common, which is amazing. And the fact that our interdependence runs so deep. I mean, <clears throat> without you know these uh, single-celled organisms, bacteria, there would nothing would be alive. Bacteria are the the real source of life, not just evolution in terms of evolution, but right here and now, if, if we didn't have the bacteria that we do have within our body, we couldn't exist. Plants couldn't exist without the bacteria that are attached to their roots, that are the source for, for nitrogen. So everything would just wither up and die. These little single-celled organisms are the crux of everything for us. So cause for gratitude? <laughs> you know, they get a bad rap. <laughs> so we're always generating antibiotics. 
but they're pretty sly creatures, so they're always outwitting us there too. But this, this interdependence that goes so deep, and the more we look, look into it scientifically, that's the reason why they keep coming back and spouting this interconnectedness because the signs of it are everywhere. It runs so deep. Question for Thomas, maybe a question about uh -huh. diversity um, in regards to rituals specifically in spiritual practices. Yeah. Um, and I, I guess maybe uh, what, what the benefit is of sticking to a specific practice, mm -hmm. spiritual practice yeah. in, in rituals. For myself, um, I was raised Catholic, and sometimes I almost, I still have some simple relatives who have stuck with Catholicism and, and go to church and do all the rituals and practices. And part of me envies, um, I'm a little jealous that they have that, and they have that their whole lives. And, mm -hmm. You know, um, whereas I've kind of like bounced around, and part of it is just because I've been exposed, you know, there's we're exposed to so much. We have so many options. Exactly. We don't live in a country where you kind of like have to be right. a Muslim or have to be a Jewish um, Hindu. Mm -hmm. Not that you but um, that's the predominant. Oh, you know, the U.S. is predominant. Christian. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and, uh, my question is, I guess just for me, I, I have found at least the past few years that mm -hmm. Zen Buddhist practice mm -hmm. um, and the rituals mm -hmm. have helped in my life right. from an ethical perspective and just getting through the day and, yeah. um, you know, learning about all the um, eightfold Four noble truths in the eightfold path, and mm -hmm. all the various, you know, teachings. Right. And it's kind of, it's like helped me stick um, with just making my bed in the morning, exercising, you know, continuing on the path of right speech. Knows if I'm going to stick with it for for five years. But there's, but there's part of me like deep, deep, deep down inside that wants to just yeah. settle, settle with, have a That's going to continue. <laughs> I think that's a healthy thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That was uh, uh, an adaptation of, of uh, what they do at Chikoji, but with a little twist. They they begin the first and the third uh, verse are the Japanese <laughs> rendering, and we switched it to make first and third the English and just insert the Japanese as the second one. But there, I mean, you know, and that just 
for that piece of it, I would like to not fall into line totally with what they do at Jokoji, but there are areas where I think our, our rituals could be uh, uh, strengthened uh, by taking on a bit more of what they do. So that'll be an ongoing thing. But more generally speaking, to, to uh, speak to what Mark's talking about in terms of uh, a tendency that's very much uh, present in, in this country, especially because of its melting pot nature, uh, that we have all these spiritual traditions to to practice now and to uh, to try on different sets of rituals and different practices uh, as opposed to the way it once was that uh, that you would pretty much fall into the practice that you grew up with. And in fact, they those practices were held to a little more rigidly anyway. So you could be burned at the stake if you even had the notion of taking on a different tradition, not to lose sight of that fact. You know, well, during uh, a period like the Protestant Reformation, uh, there, there were a lot of burnings uh, at, at that time. Uh, people that were starting to become more diverse in their practices and diversity isn't always welcomed. <laughs> you know? But now we're in a, a scenario where uh, we kind of have a free hand. So uh, you can walk away from it without the stigma that used to exist. You know, you used to be, if you were an atheist, you would closely, closely keep that secret because <laughs> you could really pay an ultimate price for that. But now you know, people uh, have no compunctions about being out there, about being agnostic or atheist and nobody's going to burn them. They're, they're really even the level of, of, of uh, uh, derision is almost shrunk to nothing because it just becomes so commonplace. I mean, it's, it's hard to, to really deride people if it's a significant portion of the population. Uh, but to go from that, which is kind of just a description of where we're at now, to this matter of uh, finding a tradition without getting attached to it, but an overall tradition that really you feel fits you since with all sincerity and authenticity, which is the way I relate to this path and, and have from the beginning. Uh, but it's not for everybody, you know, and, and for those that, that it's not such a good fit. See, the, the problem becomes we think, oh, well, they're missing it. No. <laughs> now we come back to diversity. Everybody has their own unique uh, karmic consciousness, which not everybody's karmic consciousness is going to really mesh well with this. You know, sitting still for long periods of time isn't going to be everybody's cup of tea. And maybe trying to get to that point just doesn't make sense for them. So that, that's not, uh, you know, black mark against them. Like, oh my, you can't do that. <laughs> mm, yeah. I mean, other people have practices that are deeply meaningful to them that, that don't really do anything for me. It's not a matter of judging, you know, what's right and what's wrong. It's everybody finding a path that, that is practicing, you know, this love, this compassion. Uh, it's kind of the teaching that the Dalai Lama has been very effectively out there with in terms of talking about religion, uh, more broadly speaking, that that's the important thing, what he calls the good heart. You know, it's the, all the other stuff, you know, the doctrines and the rituals and all that are just kind of like, the, the skeleton that, that, 
that you build uh, all this stuff on. But the heart, the really heart of it is that uh, interconnectedness, the, the love and the compassion. So we need more of that. But can you be an atheist and have that? Sure, absolutely. That's not dependent upon any about upon having a religious practice even. But what it does seem to be dependent upon is, uh, and this is where I think Zen practice is uh, is deeply meaningful to me. Is this practice of no self? I think. To, to have a tamping down of our strong sense of, of self is, is huge and is probably essential to our ability to continue to survive. If everybody's out there uh, just trying to, uh, to acquire for, the, for themselves endlessly, uh, that doesn't bode well. Or, you know, I look at from a scientific view of that. You know, the, one of the most important books of, of my lifetime was Richard Dawkins' The Selfish Gene. So I kind of got baked into this whole biological genetic thing that that's where we're kind of wired. Genes are, want to reproduce. Of course, we recognize now with the with uh, current human population, 8 billion or whatever, wherever it's currently at, and, and soon to, to break through 10 billion, uh, and where does it end up at? Uh, if these the selfish genes keep uh, <laughs> wanting to propagate and, 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 and the fact that rather than viewing things from this standpoint of interconnectedness, of all things that well actually it's it's carrying forward my genetic footprint that's that reigns supreme and that doesn't seem to really jive with uh with where we're we're going presently i think where we we're going thankfully is is it's although it takes a while to really adjust the ship but it seems like we are becoming more altruistic and and not so tribal although god knows tribalism is still alive and thriving but because of that there seems to be that opposite reaction to seeing what a problem that is and that we need to address that and we need to be more accepting of diversity. And that uh, that's where, even from a self-centered point of view, that, that this whole distinction between self and other dissolves. If it's all about me, the selfish gene is a stupid gene. <laughs> it's ignorance, it's deluded, would be the Buddhist response to that, it seems to me. That's my Buddhist response to it. That's delusion. Enlightenment is to see that we're all in this together. It doesn't matter what the genetic blueprint is. And the fact that you know, birth rates are declining. Are we all driven to reproduce? Doesn't seem to be the case. You know, we've got declining populations. Thank God. <laughs> That's one of Vanya Palmer's teachings. There are too many of us. <laughs> and there are. There are. It's kind of uh, eco-dharma. I mean, that's part of that whole equation is, you know, if we keep, if the population keeps growing, we don't, the planet won't support it. Even if we do get a, get some uh, kind of handle on, uh, on carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, yeah, that's good. You know, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but that's, that's not gonna uh, save us. Problems more 
uh, go runs deeper than that. So, yeah, to, to welcome diversity because diversity is there everywhere. So, part of this opening, opening up to, to what is gets to the heart of our practice is opening up to diversity. And rather than seeing it as scary, to see it is actually wonderful. Because it's things are so much richer that way. But the important thing is the harmony. You don't you can't even have harmony without diversity. There's nothing to harmonize. <laughs> so it's kind of monotone. Is that what we want? <laughs> Not what I want. Creativity okay, feeds off of diversity. Kind of like that concert we went to at the SF Jazz Center. Those three guys all from very diverse backgrounds. <laughs> Put them together and well, pretty rich. And a lot of that going on these days. Kind of a celebration of diversity. So Anything else? All right. Well, and one uh, technological update by next Thursday, I'm virtually certain we will have a, a uh, combination microphone speaker to, that'll sit in the middle of the floor. So for, for Zoom land, uh, and for us here to hear uh, uh, what our remote uh, practitioners are saying when they have comments to make, we'll, we'll have much richer dialogues because we'll be able to hear and understand each other. So we're about to, to put into effect that technological fix. Okay. May our intention equally penetrate every being and place with the true merit of Buddha's way. Beings are numberless, I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. All right. Well, enjoy the rest of your weekend out there, Joe. <laughs> Thanks for joining us.